Welcome. We hope you enjoy this recording from Christ City Church, based in Dublin, Ireland. For more podcasts and information on the church, please visit ChristCityChurch.ie. Thank you for listening. Okay, so the uh, reading is from Daniel 5. King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem, so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. So they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines drank from them. As they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood and stone. Suddenly, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall, near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale, and he was so frightened that his legs became weak, and his knees were knocking. The king summoned the enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. Then he said to these wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around his neck, and he will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or tell the king what it meant. So King Belshazzar became even more terrified, and his face grew more pale. His nobles were baffled. The queen, hearing the voices of the king and his nobles, came into the banquet hall. May the king live forever, she said. Don't be alarmed. Don't look so pale. There is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. In the time of your father, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. Your father, King Nebuchadnezzar, appointed him chief of the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. He did this because Daniel, whom the king called Belteshazzar, was found to have a keen mind and knowledge and understanding, and also the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel, and he will tell you what the writing means. So Daniel was brought before the king, and the king said to him, Are you Daniel, one of the exiles my father and the king brought from Judah? I have heard that the spirit of the gods is in you and that you have insight, intelligence, and outstanding wisdom. The wise men and enchanters were brought before me to read this writing and tell me what it means, but they could not explain it. Now I have heard that you are able to give interpretations and to solve difficult problems. If you can read this writing and tell me what it means, you will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around your neck, and you will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered the king, you may keep your gifts for yourself, and give your rewards to someone else. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. Your majesty, the most high God, gave your father Nebuchadnezzar sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. Because of the high position he gave him, all the nations and peoples of every language dreaded and feared him. Those the king wanted to put to death, he put to death. Those he wanted to spare, he spared. Those he wanted to promote, he promoted. And those he wanted to humble, he humbled. But when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven away from people and given the mind of an animal. He lived with the wild donkeys and ate grass like the ox, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven, until he acknowledged that the Most High God is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and sets over them anyone he wishes. But you, Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you, and you and your nobles, your wives, and your concubines drank wine from them. You praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. But you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. Therefore, he sent the hand that wrote the inscription. 
This is the inscription that was written. Mene, mene, take el parson. Here is what these words mean. Mene, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Take el. You have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Paris, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple, a gold chain was placed around his neck, and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain, and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. Let me just pray for Steve. Um, dear God, thank you for what you are teaching us through the book of Daniel. I pray today that you would continue to speak to us through Steve and give us humble hearts that are willing to um, examine ourselves through the week ahead uh, to um, stay true to your teaching. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Oh, Good to be with you. Uh, not so long ago, I worked in sales for a tech company here in Dublin. And as a salesperson, I had a target. And if I was failing to meet my targets, I might be weighed on a balance and found wanting. And if the situation got worse, I could be told that my days were numbered. And if all the salespeople in the tech company were struggling, it could be said that the writing was on the wall for the tech company. It's amazing to think that those phrases that are three, two, two and a half thousand years old are still in use today. I was just having a conversation about Johnny Sexton becoming the leading uh, ever point scorer for Ireland about 15, 20 minutes ago. Some of you hadn't arrived, but we won't talk about that. And, uh, and Grace said he always gets quite emotional because he knows his days are numbered now. So there you go. All three proverbs of, in this case, in chapter 5, failure, impending doom, come from Daniel chapter 5. It's a very dark chapter indeed. It's a chapter where we learn we mustn't treat God lightly. Now, I'm sure you can all remember a time when you've been treated lightly, when someone treated you with contempt, someone presumed upon you, someone took you for granted. Maybe your time or your possessions or your advice or your opinion or your money or your support, your help. Maybe someone just presumed and took lightly your emotional energy that you were giving into the relationship. Sadly, Leanne, my wife, has told me many times that the thing that hurts her most in our marriage and offends her is when I treat her lightly. I don't respect her and listen carefully enough to her. Being treated lightly by another person is so offensive to all of us because we feel of no value. We're not really that important. Well, the story we're going to learn about today from King Belshazzar of Babylon, an ancestor of Nebuchadnezzar, is that he treats God lightly. He treats God with contempt, and he therefore finds the writing is on the wall. And so for us today, whether you call yourself a follower of Jesus or not, we're going to examine, am I treating God lightly? And if so, what might the consequences be for doing so? So let's set the scene. Let's get into the story. If you've been with us, we're in Daniel chapter 5. We've had the first four chapters over the last few weeks. And we're still with this remarkable man, Daniel, who's engaging with Babylonian, the Babylonian king, but things have moved on. It's at least 50 years, maybe 60, since Daniel was first taken into exile. He was a teenager, maybe an early 20s when he was taken. Now he's in his 70s. He might even be an octogenarian. He was taken in 605 BC. This is 639 BC. So Daniel is an old man. Just think of that. Babylon, Babylon is still the most powerful empire in the world, but it's gold head that we learned about in a dream of chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar is gone. He died 17 years previous to Daniel chapter 5 and was succeeded by a number of short-term kings before Nabonidus, 
came to the throne in Babylon. Nabonidus made his son Belshazzar co-regent, entrusting the kinship to him during a 10-year absence in Arabia. Think Aladdin. So Belshazzar was technically the second ruler of the kingdom because Nabonidus was really first, but he was in Arabia. And in Daniel chapter 5, we find ourselves at Belshazzar's feast, and it was a great feast. Verses 1 to 4 tell us that it was for over a thousand people, nobles, wives, concubines of the king, came together and drank, and they drank heartily, and they drank well. And as they drank, and the inhibitions left them, that's what drink does, doesn't it? Any fear you've had and any inhibitions and insecurity, you suddenly feel like you're bravado. I can do anything with a bit of drink in me. And that's Belshazzar. So in verse 4, as they drank the wine, they took the articles that Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the Jerusalem temple, sacred articles important to the Jewish people. And Nebuchadnezzar at least had the reverence to put them in the temple of his God in Babylon. He never dared to. But Belshazzar says, let's get them. And he gets them, and he fills them with wine. And all the nobles and all the elites of Babylon start drinking. And as they drink from there, they praise, it says, the gods of gold and silver and bronze and wood and stone. Belshazzar is committing deliberate blasphemy. He knew what he was doing. He was daring to do it. He may have taken him to be drunk to do it, but he had always imagined I'd love to do that. Because in doing that, he was not only taking the, the articles, but what they represented was the humiliation and defeat of Israel. But also they were seen as proof that Israel's God was inferior to Babylon's God. That Yahweh was a captured and defeated God. And the Babylonian gods were really in charge. Yahweh was beaten and captured and his sacred bits and pieces were being used by the wealthy hedonists of Babylon to get drunk and worse still to worship their false gods. This wasn't a thoughtless act of a tourist who forgets to remove his shoes in a holy place of some foreign nation. This is a calculated and intentional act of mockery with the vessels of the living God. But as with Nebuchadnezzar, things were suddenly going to change. And we learned last week in chapter 4 that pride comes before a fall. While the writing is on the wall, verse 5 and 6, a human hand appears and starts writing, and the king's face turns pale. He quickly sobered up, one imagines. And he was so frightened that his legs, it says, began to shake and his knees were knocking. Here is the famous Rembrandt painting of this moment. Belshazzar is facing his maker and judge, and he's out of his depth. Well, church, if you've been with us, what do Babylonian kings do when they're out of their depth? They call their advisors. And what do they discover as they call their enchanters, astrologers, and diviners to give them advice? That they are hopeless advisors, impotent to offer any support in the face of the living God because they're just charlatans who have somehow risen to power in Babylon, but they don't know the living God. But like many powerful people, Belshazzar thinks, well, I've got lots of money, so I'll just buy myself out of problems. That's what people do with money. 
Well, I can just throw my money around. So I'll make the person the highest ruler of the land. I'll, I'll give them a gold chain. I'll give them a purple robe. And if anyone can interpret this, my Babylonian officials can't, but is there anyone out there? Well, church, a king out of his depth, advisors proving impotent. We know the story of Daniel. What happens next? Enter Daniel. But actually, no. By reputation, Daniel enters the scene. Do you see it was the queen that said, hey, I do know someone who was able to help in a previous time in the kingdom when your father, Nebuchadnezzar, was as stupid and as foolish as you. And you might wonder, why wasn't the queen at the feast? Well, one wonders, with all those concubines and other wives, maybe she didn't want to turn up. But she comes in and tells about a man who'd proved rather useful. And it says in verse 11, the spirits of the holy gods was in him. Verse 12, he had a keen mind and knowledge and understanding and also the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles and solve difficult problems. And so the octogenarian Daniel is brought in. Maybe he's a bit hunched over, who knows. He's offered the rewards of riches and power if he can calm the king's fear. It's been five or six decades since Daniel handled the tricky situations with Nebuchadnezzar, but nothing has changed in his heart. He's the same person as he was when he's a teenager, now in his 70s. He's a man who fears God and not man. He answers with clarity, and you will all wish you were as cool and calm and collected as Daniel. Read verse 17. Then Daniel answered the king, you may keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. Wouldn't you love to be as cool as Daniel? In front of the most powerful man in the world? But we've seen this coolness, clarity, and confidence. It's not bravado. Daniel's not wanting to impress anyone. He just fears the Lord and does the right thing. This is just the overflow of a heart. For years, this is what he's done. Whenever there's a tricky situation, fear the Lord, do the right thing. He's not trying to be brave. He is brave. That's the person he's become. He honors the king, but he honors his God most. And riches and power have no claws on Daniel. He does not care for riches or power. They have no hold on him. No one can persuade him with riches and power. Because he knows the God of heaven. He has a relationship with the living God. He has riches and power that this world has nothing to offer him when it comes to riches and power. His satisfaction and security lies in God. And Daniel gives Belteshazzar a history lesson, verses 18 to 28. He tells him the history of how the arrogant Nebuchadnezzar had been humbled by the Most High God and how there's only one who is sovereign over all kingdoms. Ah, God, he reigns, we just sang, now and forever. Daniel knew that. That was the history lesson that he gave Belshazzar. And after the history lesson, the painful application for the new arrogant king. But you, Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. Instead, you set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. Do you see the phrase? Though you knew all this. 
You knew what had happened to your ancestor Nebuchadnezzar. You knew how God had given him a great kingdom. You knew how he had grown proud. You knew how he'd been humbled on a few occasions. You knew how he repented and was restored. You knew all that, and yet you acted in arrogance. You set yourself up against the God of heaven. You have not humbled yourself. You have spoiled yourself. You've defiled the sacred objects. You've worshipped idols you cannot see, nor hear, nor understand. So there's one application that we have to make at this point in the talk. My friend years ago said this to me. I thought it was a great application of Daniel 5. God has no grandkids. Just because your parents and your grandparents were people of faith, that gives you no automatic right to assume anything. You need to deal with the living God for yourself. In fact, if your parents or your grandparents were people of faith, and they inspired you, and they showed you a life that was worth living, and they read the scriptures, and they acted in faith, and you saw answers to prayer, and you knew in moments in your past the Spirit of God touching you, and you chose to ignore it? Be warned by Daniel chapter 5. God has no grandkids. He wants you to reconcile with him directly. You turn your back on him, and do not honor him, be warned. And so comes the interpretation, verse 26. Oh, he says to Daniel, uh, Daniel says to him, but you did not honor the God who holds in, your, in his hand your life and all your ways. And so we need to hear that too. Do I honor the God who holds in his hand my life and all my ways? And now the interpretation. Here is what the words mean. Mene, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you've been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. This is an unequivocal word of irreversible doom for Belshazzar. And so here's another lesson we have to learn from Daniel 5. If you're going to live for God, you will at times need to say hard things to people, even if they don't want to hear it. If you're going to be a true friend, if you're going to be a useful advisor as a friend, it will mean you will have to care enough for that person to tell them the hard truth if they're not living in a way that honors Jesus. At some point, that'll be important. And you'll never do that if you fear them more than you fear the living God. What happens next, verse 29 and 30? Belshazzar still thinks he can buy his way out of trouble. Daniel is clothed in purple, a gold chain is placed around his neck, and he's proclaimed the, highest, the third highest ruler in the kingdom after the first two. And then verse 30, the last verse of the, of the, of the passage, that very night Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain, and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. So there's the story, fascinating story. We still use phrases today that are from this story of ancient Babylon. In many respects, the story is what's come before with Nebuchadnezzar. It's the, story, it's the book of Daniel. It's the, it's the same story. A king living in luxury, but proud and arrogant, suddenly finds his insecurity and fear is revealed. He has feet of clay. He's not really that. He's got a lot of bravado, but a lot of insecurity. And he suddenly faces something he can't control or interpret, which reveals his instability. His wise men are revealed to be impotent and useless. They're just yes men in reality. Daniel is called forward and he, he speaks confidently to the king, interprets the situation and saves the day. And God is revered as the true God and the King of kings and the Lord of lords. The book of Daniel, that's the book of Daniel. 
Yes, but you know what I thought when I compared Nebuchadnezzar to Belshazzar? Have you thought it? Why does Nebuchadnezzar get so many chances when he's proud? Belshazzar doesn't get just, he just gets the one. Nebuchadnezzar had God's intervention in the dream of chapter 2, in the fiery furnace of chapter 3, in another dream more personal in chapter 4. He's had three chances. Why does Belshazzar not get any chance? Isn't God the God of the second chance? And, and the third, we say you know, he's the God of the second chance. The God of the, he wasn't here. There was just one chance for Belshazzar. What? That's why verse 22 is the key. But you, Belshazzar, his son, have humbled yourself, though you knew all this. Belshazzar had received ample revelation and chances from God. He had ample history telling him the revelation of who God was and what God required. He'd had plenty of chances through his ancestors. There's a, there's a passage in the New Testament that I think summarizes this passage brilliantly. It's from Hebrews, which is the same book that the Tim Chester book is being recommended. It says this, If we deliberately keep on sinning, after we've received knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment on a raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think someone deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, has treated as an unholy thing, not the articles of the temple, has treated as an unholy thing, not the blood of the covenant that sanctified them, and has insulted the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, it is mine to avenge, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The sin of Belshazzar was a sin against the light, a sin against the truth he knew, a sin against the grace of having an example and a lesson from his father. And such deliberate, open-eyed sin is the most serious kind. In its extreme form, it becomes what Jesus said is a sin against the Holy Spirit that's unforgivable. This is when a person having seen and know the power of God at work, refuses to acknowledge God and instead attributes the power of God to the evil one or another source. You know something is of God and you deliberately reject it and you attribute it to something else. It's impossible for God to forgive that sin. There's nothing God can do more. He's willing to forgive, but he's unable to give because of the hardness of hearts. It's a vicious cycle when it comes to the gradual hardening of a heart. You know the truth about God, that you deny it or live against it. And eventually you've lived against it so long you've convinced yourself of your lie to be truth and the truth to be falsehood. And now your lies are betrayed, uh, paraded as absolute truth. The passage today and the one in Hebrews 10 remind us that God cannot be mocked. You cannot treat him lightly. You cannot presume upon God's grace in such a way as to abuse it. As Hebrews says, you mustn't trample underfoot the precious Son of God. There are two mistakes we make as Christians, or if you're not a Christian, as people, when we think about who God is and how we relate to him. And the two mistakes lead to an imbalance and a distortion. 
On the one hand, we view God as a nasty God who wants to punish us and put us down. He's our angry man in the, in the sky wagging his finger because we're not obeying his rules. And therefore, we're scared of him and we're full of guilt and we find following him is just a burden and it's a duty and it's a drain and there's no joy, there's no peace, there's no intimacy and freedom in our relationship with God. In this case, the imbalance is that we've emphasized God's holiness over and against his love. And in turn, our view of God's holiness has become a distortion. He's an angry God in the sky who's wagging his finger because we're disobeying the rules. That's not the biblical view of God and his holiness. On the other hand, we have a view that God is just like a cuddly toy. He's my mate that I can call upon when I feel down. And he loves me and cares for me and he's soft and he's fluffy and he always forgives no matter what we do. And he's never angry and he's never jealous and he's never full of wrath. In this case, the imbalance is that we've emphasized God's love over and against his holiness. And so in turn, God's love has really become a distortion. He's soft, he's fluffy, he's cuddly. His love is weak and flabby. It makes no demands. It overlooks sin and evil, hypocrisy and pride. But the God of the Bible is fully loving and fully holy without compromising or creating an imbalance and a distortion in either of those two attributes. His holiness is about perfect justice and integrity, perfect goodness and purity. Speak to any school kid, girl or boy, playing a little game of soccer in the playground. They will tell you they care about justice. We care about justice. We want to know there's a right and wrong in the universe. We want a God of holiness. And yet his love is costly and jealous and fierce and strong, like the love of a mother protecting a child. That's not a soft love. That's a love that will die, that will confront, that will put life in danger. This isn't some tame love. It's a love to overwhelm us. It's a love to change us. Now, people often say, you know, well, the God of the Old Testament's the nasty one, and the God of the New Testament is a nice one. But this is so trite and does not reflect either books. Jesus talks about hell and judgment more than anyone else. And the God of the Old Testament is always looking out for the widow and the orphan and the alien with love and compassion. So how is the tension of God's love and God's holiness and our relationship to him as sinners reconciled? Well, that is what the book of Hebrews that I've just read chapter 10 is all about. How can the judge be our friend? How can this consuming fire be our father? How can the one of perfect justice be our lover? How can God be those two things and I know him as both equally? The book of Hebrews says, we have a great high priest who's able to meet our need. He's just like us. He represents us as in our humanity. And he's just like God. He's pure and perfect. And this high priest mediated. He dealt with the tension of God's love and holiness. How? How did the great high priest do it? He was the full and sufficient sacrifice. He wasn't just the priest. He was the sacrifice. And after he provided satisfaction and purification for sin, the book of Hebrews tells us again and again, he sat down. Because the work was finished of dealing, reconciling. How does I relate to a God of love who wants to save me, but a God of holiness who has to judge me through the Son? God of the Old Testament and the New Testament hasn't changed. He's still the judge. 
He's still the consuming fire. But now we have a better mediator, a great high priest. The judge is a friend. The consuming fire is my father. The perfect one of justice is my lover. And when you experience God as both, and when you ponder on the marvelous cross and that blood that was shed to mean you can relate to this God confidently, do not trample under your feet the Son of God. Do not treat as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant. Do not insult the Spirit of grace by treating this God and his sacrifice for you lightly by continuing in your sin. Don't do it. There's a warning. One person put it like this. Fear and love are inseparable elements of true religion. Fear preserves love from degenerating into presumptuous familiarity. Love prevents fear from becoming a servile and cringing dread. That's the imbalance corrected. And think about Daniel to understand how you can relate to the living God as both fully loving and fully holy. Daniel feared God. No one in this world, nothing, not even the powerful man, could, uh, the kings of Babylon could control him. His fear of God drove out any fear of man. He's free. He's free. That's when you have the full view of God of the scriptures, not your God made in your own image, not God out of your emotions, not God that the... When you know the God of the Bible, the full true God, it sets you free. You become like Daniel. This tension starts to melt you as you consider what the cross meant. Daniel knew God loved him. He knew God was with him. We find him praying three times a day to God. He knew he was forgiven by God, but he didn't treat God lightly. He wasn't casual or lazy about sin. It did not lead him to cowardice and procrastination. It made him courageous and strong and confident and stable. He lived only for God. He feared God. He was controlled only by God. Daniel in chapter 6 is going to face some lions, and he could face the lions because he knew a greater lion from the tribe of Judah, the great lion Jesus. He knew him. He, 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 knew, he knew the living God as the one to ultimately fear that could could banish any fear. C.S. Lewis would pick up on this idea of Jesus, the great lion, and the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. And Lucy and Susan would be asking the beavers about this Aslan, and who is he? And is he a man? And they ask these questions of him. And then at one point, Lucy says, well, is he safe? No, but he's good. He's the king. That's the tension of the scriptures. Our God is a consuming fire. He's not safe. He's not cuddly. He's not just your mate you can call on when you need him. He's the living God, and he's here, and he's active, and he's present. And yes, he's full of love, and he's like a father towards you, but the only reason is is because of the wonderful sacrifice of his son, Jesus. And Lucy would come to cuddle the mane and bask in the majesty of the lion as well as, as, well as being enveloped in his warmth. This is how the writer to the Hebrews finishes his sermon. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, Babylon would shake, the Medo-Persian Empire would shake, we're receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably. What does acceptable worship look like? With reverence and awe. Why? New Testament. Because our God is a consuming fire. So to finish, where do you need to redress your view 
of God? Where is there imbalance and distortion in how you relate to him? Is your God full of holiness without love? And therefore you don't approach him confidently. You're, you are scared of him. You always feel full of guilt and you lack joyful confidence. If that's you today, meditate on the cross. Think about what Jesus has done and draw near to him in full assurance of faith through Christ. Or is your God full of love without holiness? And like Belshazzar, you think, well, I can just get away with sin and I can be a bit casual with God and I'll ask for forgiveness later. It doesn't really matter. If that's you, honor the one who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. Whichever it is, look to Jesus, the great high priest, the sympathetic high priest, the merciful high priest, the perfect, satisfying, and complete substitute, the lion from the tribe of Judah. Look to him and his cross. Approach his throne of grace and find mercy in your time of need. Let me finish with this. After the morning service, we had a prophetic word from one of the the women at the church after I'd spoken. And she came, and I just thought it was a, a word for our church, and it fits so well with this passage. She says, a lot of us are she felt we're like a, a, an animal that had been caught and we were trapped and we couldn't get out of some trap. Something had got hold of us. And then, the, you know, this, 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 this powerful person comes to try and release us and then the animal's initial reaction to the powerful person is to run more into the trap thinking this powerful person is going to destroy us. But the powerful person's got the power to release the trap. And it's a bit like that. You have to wrestle with God. He's going to wrestle with you and you're going to be scared and you have to let him in. You have to let him come. And then she was saying, because there's freedom. Maybe it is freedom from sin. Maybe it's freedom from a pattern of thinking. Maybe it's freedom from some negative relationship. There's a freedom to be had when you know the true and living God. You become like Daniel when you know God full of holiness and full of love. Let's take a moment to be still. Why don't you stand to your feet if you're able. We're going to respond in song, and then I will pray. But think for a moment about any distortion you have in your view of God and ask him now to reveal himself to you. Just take a moment to be silent and then I'll pray. Father, we look at Daniel and we so admire him. We so long that we'd be like him able to speak truth to power, fearing no one, honoring you to the rest of our days. And yet, Lord, when we look at our own lives, we, we see a, a compromise or a cowardice. Or we don't see that same wisdom and sensitivity that he had. And Lord, I'm sure it comes because we don't know you truly as, truly as the God you revealed yourself to be, full of holiness, fierce, fiercely jealous for us, and yet full of love and tender and kind towards us. So, Lord, where we have an imbalance, where we need to know you more truly, even now as we respond in song and as we sing about you and as we reflect on your character, unlock our hearts to know you and truly worship you with reverence and awe. In Jesus' name, amen.